This is an e-learning course brought to you by Contemplative Light. We are a community of spiritual teachers and writers, graciously offering our insight, experience, and most importantly, our love. We hope you enjoy your course. So now we come to the life of the mystic Mechthild of Magdeburg from the 13th century. Um, born a little bit later than St. Francis, but roughly contemporaneous in that 13th century. Mechthild of Magdeburg um, is an interesting figure in that she was the first mystic to write in German rather than say, like Hildegard of Bingen, who still wrote in, in Latin. So she writes in the local vernacular, and she is born to a noble Saxon family, and has, or describes anyway, having her first vision of the Holy Spirit at age 12. In 1230, she renounces the worldly honor and, and riches of her family and becomes a Beguine at Magdeburg, which is... Um, a lay sister without formal vows. There is a more recent book about the Beguines as a, a kind of social movement that was empowering for women with very few options for life. The Beguines offered a, a, an alternative to necessarily becoming a formal nun, taking vows, or pursuing you know, marriage and, and alliance through family. This was very empowering for, for some, and there were some towns who had a kind of begin communities, entire row of houses where the women would live in community with each other, sort of committed to, uh, you know, purity, chastity, virtue, charity, uh, compassion, all those, those values, but without sort of a formal order and formal vows. Mechthild, this, this figure from the 13th century, had a Dominican confessor um, in Magdeburg, uh, Henry of Halle, and he encouraged her to write down some of her experiences. And this became her famous work on Christian mysticism called The Flowing Light of the Godhead. And we think this work, The Flowing Light of the, God, the Godhead, may have been read by and influenced uh, Dante in his composition of the Divine Comedy. And it's possible that th this figure called Matilda, who is portrayed at the end of Mount Purgatory when Dante and his guide Virgil cross over this river, at the top of Mount Purgatory into this earthly paradise, kind of a garden of Eden. And they see this woman who is picking flowers and they have an exchange with her and she is the figure of Matilda. And there is um, speculation that she is this Mechthild of Magdeburg, this German mystic, reasons we'll get into. He also became a, a Dominican tertiary, kind of like an oblate or, or like a lay Dominican. The Dominicans, kind of like the Franciscans, was also this mendicant order, a little more loosely held in some of the cloistered uh, monastics. And she became, much like Hildegard, kind of this, this outspoken critic of religious laxity and corruption of the day. And possibly to escape uh, persecution, 
later in life, sort of in her 60s, she um, moves to this cons- uh, Cistercian convent in Helfta, sort of directly to the south of Magdeburg, and there she is offered uh, protection from some of her antagonists. Uh, again, some context is necessary here. 13th century life, things are changing. Those include urbanization. People are moving to the cities and those urban centers. And there's, again, this change from nobility being the only access to wealth to now we can acquire wealth through effort in this rising merchant class. And wealth is starting to be displayed differently and located in these population centers. So new sort of status symbols in dress and uh, wealth displayed in the, in the uh, residence is becoming more and more widespread. Everything that goes along with that accumulation of wealth, competition, display through dress, and uh, it's kind of uh, everyday among the commoners, a kind of vying for status in this this kind of ethos of competition as a part of the fabric of society, whereas before there was a pretty clear split between the nobility and the, the, the workers. The church is obviously affected by these social changes. The remote monasteries in, in, in kind of r- rural areas are losing in influence. They don't have the same role. They don't have the same stature or influence that they did before. But also, this new wealth is also coming into the churches. There's this encroaching materialism and some of the vices and corruptions that come with, with wealth are infiltrating the ranks of the church. And so the 13th century has these reactions to that social process in the form of sort of calls to reform, to return to more devout lifestyles of the past uh, from the previous era. And so the two mendicant orders or begging orders, like the Franciscans and the Dominicans, they rise in this 13th century with a, this, their, their sort of countercultural emphasis on poverty this pattern of the rise of wealth as a corrupting influence and the desire on the part of some to embrace poverty, to embrace simplicity as a means of preserving their spiritual purity. So in that sense, Mechthild has a lot of of parallel overlap with St. Francis before her. The Dominicans, in fact, were the biggest influence on Mechthild of Magdeburg. These are the order of preachers. That's their specific emphasis is on preaching and specifically preaching about or, or in order to preserve the church against heresies, against the spreading of a sort of false understanding, false teaching. Two of their enemies in a sense as an order were the corrupting influence of corporate property and the seed of discord that that would sow within communities and, uh, or, or this form of wealth. And second, being confined to a monastery rather than going out and preaching locally or meeting people in their need where they were. So in spite of, of reform in, in, in society and within the church, 
This newly formed community of the Beguines was really the only place where women could be in leadership. So this is where Mechthild of Magdeburg finds herself, ascends to a, a leadership role and a role of, of respect within the Beguines. And another effect of, of the increased wealth also meant an increase in literacy. So uh, writing in the vernacular instead of Latin is, is a lot more uh, effective than it might have been in centuries past where you had widespread illiteracy. But now with the rise of the merchant class, the rise of wealth, the rise of urbanization, uh, you get this new, newly literate class. And so we think of Dante and the Divine Comedy making this radical shift from this Latinate or Latin-centric church communication to his writing in the vernacular as a kind of shift from high culture and preserving kind of divinity in a separate sphere from everyday experience, but moving divine language in, in, in theological dialogue and writing out of Latin and into the vernacular has this eye-opening effect. It, it connects much more with where people are in their everyday experience and makes sort of the divine more accessible and in a sense emphasizes sort of the, the humanity rather than the transcendent divinity of, of God. In that sense, Mechthild's sort of highly personal mysticism was intended for everyone and, and to become through her particular experience a kind of universal touchstone instead of just for the clergy whereas maybe previous mystics like a, a Hildegard or a, a Richard of St. Victor those texts would have been disseminated more and their, their teaching more so it, within the clergy but here you have a kind of universal dissemination. So Mechthild of Magdeburg her major works, um, really the, the big one uh, of hers, first mystic to write in the German language again, this middle low German, is the flowing light of the Godhead. And there's really three stages to this work. It, it's more of a collection than a kind of a coherent arc. There are seven books in total, and the first five books were all completed by 1260. And then the next decade sees a completion of her sixth book that is integrated into this long work. But then in 1270, she makes that move from this Beguine community down to the Cistercian nuns. And really the seventh book is written in its entirety during her stay, the Cistercian nuns at Helfta. So it, it kind of bookmarks different eras in her life as well. Written in that vernacular in Middle Low German, really Mechthild uh, becomes a popularizer of vernacular as a vessel of the holy. And that in itself, as we said, is that thread that Dante will pick up on in the Divine Comedy. She also has these, these sort of passionate visions and uh, graphic descriptions of, of torment uh, of those in, in say, uh, purgatory or, or, or hell. Interestingly, in, in spite of her influence during her era, she was mostly forgotten 
by the 15th century and then was rediscovered in the 19th century and then translated into English. And really her uh, influence has been much broader in, in recent centuries than in the post-Renaissance era. And so one way to think about her work, The Flowing Light of the Godhead, is like kind of a mystic's journal. It's just full of prayers, hymns, dialogues, love poems, visions, letters, and, and parables based on her visions. And what she does in the work is sort of combine the sensual language of, of the courtly love poetry, poetic tradition, and reflections on the Song of Songs from the Old Testament, which is a favorite piece of wisdom literature uh, interpreted over the centuries by, by different mystics and becomes this text of analysis, almost a, a central touchstone for mystics from the early church fathers on. Bernard McGinn, in his study, The Essential Writings of, of Christian Mysticism, collects sort of several of those mystical reflections on the Song of Songs as a sort of part and parcel of a, a sort of allegorical interpretation of that text as part of the, the classical and medieval mystics uh, sort of repertoire almost, like um, in, in folk music where these folk standards that different folk singers will, will do a riff on. It's, it's kind of like that. And so here's a quote from The Flowing Light of the Godhead by Mechthild of Magdeburg. I cannot dance, Lord, unless you lead me. If you want me to leap with abandon, you must intone the song. Then I shall leap into love, from love into knowledge from knowledge into enjoyment, and from enjoyment beyond all human sensations. And there I want to remain, yet want also to circle higher still. And in that movement, we, we can kind of hear the, the echo of mystical poetry. It reminds me of some of Rumi's poems, the uh, Sufi mystic, of abandonment to divine will, and so I'm being caught up in divine will, in movement, through uh, dance, in song. And then, however, like we've said with some of the other mystics, there's this moment of negation, a movement beyond perception and sense experience into that which transcends, as Meshtil puts it, all human sensations. And it's there she wants to remain. And, and we get this sense of, like we will with later mystics, Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, of these movements in, in, in this dark night of the soul that separates the uh, first stages of mystical awareness with the divine union. As we said in the introduction, there's an underlying framework or infrastructure of the mystical life as a set of stages. And we get that sense here too, that there's this upward movement, and yet there is a distinct demarcation between abiding in the world of sense, understanding with all its available wisdom, knowledge, love, pleasure, but transcending and moving beyond that into some deeper mystery. And another quote, Lord, you are my lover, my longing, 
my flowing stream, my sun, and I am your reflection. The day of my spiritual awakening was the day I saw and knew I saw all things in God and God in all things. And there we get this sense of the divine union, the infusion, and the the ability of the mystic to perceive through the sense perception the transcendent, the divine. A fish cannot drown in water. A bird does not fall in air. In the fire of creation, gold does not vanish. The fire brightens. Each creature God made must live in its own true nature. How could I resist my nature that lives for oneness with God? Of all that God has shown me, I can speak just the smallest word. Not more than a honeybee takes on her foot from an overspilling jar. So there we get this vivid imagery and get sort of rooted in, in, in the natural world of the medieval period about, on the one hand, following our own true nature, and yet this sense of overabundant glory and beauty in, perceivable in and through creation for the mystic. And so, some key takeaways from the life and work of Mechthild of Magdeburg. She's one of the early female mystics, but the very first mystic to write in the vernacular German. And that shifts the locus of the divine from this authoritative Latin divinely authorized body to kind of an individual vernacular understanding. And even though the Protestant Reformation is centuries away, this is starting to plant the seed of moving the authority of relationship to God from an institution to an individual. Once literacy is further and further spread, people begin to interact with texts by themselves. And this, of course, we're we're pre a, a German Bible, but we have these German spiritual mystical texts from Mechthild of Magdeburg. So this is part of a, a historical movement on the on, on the historical theological side, but at the same time is has these these characteristics of the mystical experience and the mystical text. She is echoing some of the early mystics in her emphasis on the Song of Songs as this poem of sensual divine union. And for us, Mechtil becomes a kind of symbol of the Beguines themselves, this community that embraces poverty, chastity, virtue, in response to this sort of 13th century materialism that's encroaching. And yet, soon after, with the accusation of heresy and execution of Marguerite Poirette, the Beguines begin to sort of lose their stature. And another Dominican, Eckhart, uh, Meister Eckhart will have his writings condemned as heretical. Some of that network that with which Mechthild is associated with kind of begins to wane as the church becomes, during an, an era in which the church is kind of unstable and trying to consolidate its power 
and it's worried about some of the influence of the, the mystical writings as to sort of crack down on that. Mechthild comes right before that, and, and her writing is still influential and widespread. Mechthild has this unique combination in her work, The Flowing Light of the Godhead, of poetry and prose about the unitive life. And so among our four types, the visionary, the lover, the unitive, the iconoclast, Mechthil very much fits within that vein of unitive. She has some of those visionary elements and traces um, that characterized Hildegard of Bingen, but she is kind of a, a little bit more interested in, in preserving and communicating the experience of, of the unitive life with God. This concludes our course. To learn more, please visit our website at www.contemplativelight.com. We look forward to seeing you again soon.